When your Alka-Seltzer tablets get down to four, that's the time to buy some more. Good evening, everyone. This is John W. Vandercook speaking for Alka-Seltzer, bringing you the news of the world. President Roosevelt has returned safely to the United States. The American armies forcing steadily ahead across the Cologne Plain have crossed the Eft River, the last natural barrier before the Rhine, in at least three places. In a wide sector, German and French defenses have practically collapsed, and prisoners are pouring in. We're only six and a half miles from Cologne. The Russians have overcome all Nazi resistance and difficult muddy terrain to thrust another 30 miles in the direction of the Baltic Sea coast. The German preparations for a counterattack against the exposed northern flank of the Red Army apparently has been overthrown. The British House of Commons today, by an overwhelming majority, backed the Yalta decisions about Poland. Two U.S. submarines, Escolar and Shark, are reported lost. And now a word from Charles Lyon. Does the kind of work you do sometimes leave you feeling dull and upset with a headache, say, along about this time of day? Well, if so, try this for prompt, pleasant relief. Drop an Alka-Seltzer tablet or two into a glass of water like this. Now listen to it fizz. Then, drink it. The pain-relieving analgesic sodium acetyl salicylate in Alka-Seltzer goes promptly to work to relieve that aching head because it is dissolved when you take it. And because it is guarded by valuable alkaline buffers, this analgesic loses little or no effectiveness. Yes, try Alka-Seltzer for that occasional headache and let it help you feel better fast. And now back to John W. Vandercook. During the last six days, the Allied armies invading the German Rhineland province have captured nearly 30,000 enemy prisoners. Further, willing and unwilling Nazi captives are being collected at the rate of hundreds, perhaps thousands a day. That rich yield of enemy quitters is especially remarkable, since the area overrun during the week has been of comparatively small extent. Weather has been bad, and most of our planes, which ordinarily would work out ahead in support of the tanks and infantry, have been grounded. The enemy troops who have been parading back toward our overcrowded prisoner stockades, therefore, do not even have the excuse of having undergone the most nerve-shattering of all war experiences, prolonged aerial bombardment. With all one's fingers tightly crossed, one can only conclude that a large segment of the forces under von Rundstedt in the West have now simply decided they have had enough. It was reported a few days ago that the food rations of all Germany had been reduced one-eighth by a government order. Without any claims of originality, I guessed at the time that further inevitable reductions would soon be reported. Few expected that that next cut would come so soon. But today the Berlin radio again informs the German people they must make their reduced rations, which were supposed to last for eight weeks, serve for nine weeks instead. In addition, specific reductions have been made in the civilian German rations of bread, meat, cheese, and fat. In short, in the chief essentials of life, with the conspicuous exception of that Germanic staff of life, the potato. Such news probably contributes almost as much to the present epidemic of German surrenders as do the achievements of our now fast-rolling and invincible-seeming armies. The troops we have captured were left behind by von Rundstedt to delay our march to the Rhine. Tonight, the American vanguard is only a little more than eight miles from the historic point where they will be able to wash off some of the mud in that classic and sacred German river. Quite plainly, von Rundstedt's rearguard has failed to do its duty. 
most of the troops who have thrown down their arms and their hands up have failed deliberately. One swallow does not make a summer. Even a million German captives we have discovered to our amazement do not make a victory. Nevertheless, all present signs are pointing in the right direction. Few have thought the end in Europe would come abruptly. A gradual conclusion is always seem more probable. That conclusion is coming in view when whole Nazi companies and battalions at a time, as now seems occasionally to be the case, begin to quit with their officers consenting. The epidemic may, of course, be local. When we hear of whole divisions throwing away its arms, the end is in sight. Now to NBC in Western Europe. Bradley's command post. Ninth and First Army troops continue to crack on toward the Rhine today. And though a security blackout prevents our pinpointing the position of General Simpson's men, General Hodges' First Army troops are tonight within six and a half miles of Cologne. Already American guns are shelling this would-be fortress city, which has been turned to rubble by repeated air attacks. Up to noon today, Ninth Army forces had counted more than 1,500 prisoners of war, including men from fortress battalions, pioneer corps, panzer elements, stomach battalions, and assault gun units. However, the Ninth Army met an increased German resistance today. This is principally due to a shift in the balance of German armor on this front. New panzer divisions were encountered in the fighting late yesterday, particularly along the main roads leading to the Rhine city of Düsseldorf. That, in combination with a necessity to clean up pockets of enemy bypassed in the breakthrough yesterday, has slowed down the pace of the drive somewhat on this northernmost American sector. To reach a point just a half dozen miles from Cologne, the First Army had to cross what was to have been the main pre-Rhine defense position, the Erft River. It may now be said that one of the crossings was secured along the main Duren to Cologne Road. The Germans had destroyed the road bridge, but American engineers set up a new crossing point within a very short time. Though First Army troops have been shelled quite heavily from guns along the Erft River line, our 12-mile frontage on this last natural barrier before the Rhine bodes no good for the German suicide troops. The Germans will be able to do no more than delay our progress to the Rhine. They cannot hold, though German resistance may reach its peak on the perimeters of the main Rhine city. The Germans are by now cognizant of that, which is one of the reasons why the remaining bridges across the Rhine are prepared for demolition. Barges with pontoon bridge superstructures are now being lined up along the river to carry the last escaping Germans over to the east bank. We're moving closer to that bank every hour. And now back to NBC in New York. The next stop on our round-the-world world news journey will be in an advanced fleet headquarters in Guam. Go ahead, NBC in the Pacific. This is Robert McCormick at Advanced Fleet Headquarters on Guam. As you look over the figures on the results of the last B-29 raid on Tokyo, you can't help but wonder how the Japs react to such bombing. An area the size of 230 city blocks burned right out of the center of Tokyo. Are the Japs resourceful enough to spring back into shape after such a catastrophe? Well, from what we know and what we can guess, I'm willing to stick my neck out. I believe our bombings at Tokyo, by both 29s and carrier planes, have produced widespread panic and disorganization in the city. I believe the panic may be even greater than the actual physical damage. Tokyo is not prepared to go underground as thoroughly as Berlin was when we finally opened up on Germany. The Japs considered Tokyo absolutely safe from bombing, and they were justified in feeling that way. After all, just a year ago, we were still thousands of miles away from the Jap mainland. 
we were far beyond the range of any bomber. As the bombings go along, the Japs presumably will learn how to protect themselves. But the way things are stepping along now, we'll be able to swarm over them with enormous numbers of bombers and enormous bombers before they do learn how to take care of themselves. It all depends on how quickly we can put our bombing program into high gear. Also, I do not believe the Japs have the ability to improvise that the Germans have. I don't believe, for example, that they have the imagination to patch up battered railroad systems and keep them operating in spite of regular blastings from the air. Meanwhile, we get encouraging word from General Holland Smith, the commander of Fleet Amphibious Forces, that the fighting at Iwo Jima will probably be over in a few days. And Radio Tokyo hints the same thing by deploring the shortage of water on the island. This is Robert McCormick at Guam, and now we take you to NBC in Washington. This is Morgan Beatty in our nation's capital. The president is losing no time in getting his report on Yalta before the Congress and the country. Promptly at 12.30 tomorrow, despite the strain of his trip abroad, he will appear in the well of the house. He'll talk for a half hour or so from his chair, something in the nature of a chat. Majority Leader McCormick of the House says the chief executive will use the floor microphone instead of the speaker's rostrum, and his address will be broadcast by NBC. Admiral Ross McIntyre made another report today on the president's health. Mr. Roosevelt is standing up well under the strain. He's thinner than he was a year ago, but his color's better. All in all, it's not a report to worry about, but the pressure of office and the natural limitations of age seemingly prohibit Dr. McIntyre from making any ringing declaration. But Mr. Roosevelt returns obviously optimistic for the world future, hopeful, confident that the nation and the Congress will go along with the declaration of Yalta and a world peace organization. The presidential family attended the funeral today of General Edwin Watson on a rain-swept hillside in Arlington. And from Rochester, Minnesota, comes word that Harry Hopkins is a patient in St. Mary's Hospital there. He has long suffered from a stomach ailment. But going back to world events, there is a pressing reason for speed on the conference of the Crimea and its decisions. American democracy is on the spot in ways that are not exactly obvious. Here's how. There is no question but what the Russian legislature will approve the decisions of Marshal Stalin. Tomorrow, the House of Commons in London will approve the course of Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Naturally, the question arises, is there no way for America, the greatest of the democracies, to make prompt, clear decisions on international crises? Both Congress and the President are well aware of the grave element of delay in our handling of foreign affairs, hence the signal for speed. We have another example of this problem today in Mexico City on the purely hemisphere question of using military force to stop aggression. The American delegation has prepared a plan to go along with the majority down there in favor of military sanctions against aggressors, but nothing can be done until congressional leaders and the White House are consulted. And here's the rest of the news. Senate majority leadership tonight predicts a safe margin for confirmation of Henry Wallace as Secretary of Commerce tomorrow now that the president has signed the George Bill, sharing the lending powers from the cabinet post. Secretary Stimson of the War Department has thrown cold water on the idea that a quarter of a million soldiers will be released each month after V-Day in Europe. Most will go to the Pacific. And the Army announces that the United States is building in great volume a new jet-propelled fighter plane, the Shooting Star, capable of the greatest speeds ever attained in the air, perhaps 600 miles an hour. 
The French government has finally won its way with Lend-Lease to the tune of two billion odd dollars. And the senators are going to see spots before their eyes, literally, if they aren't careful with their table manners. The Senate restaurant is desperately short of table linen, and they're not going to change every time a touch of bean soup misses the mark. And that's what happened in Washington today. Before we switch you back to John W. Vandercook, I wonder if you ever said... Don't know what's the matter with me. I'm doing the same work I've always done, but I seem to be more tired out at the end of the day. Well, sir, among other things, that tired feeling could indicate a dietary deficiency in the B-complex vitamins. You see, since the B-complex vitamins in food are so easily destroyed by transportation, processing, and cooking, it is quite possible you're not getting enough of them in your daily diet. Enough, that is, to help maintain the pep and get-up-and-go that you used to enjoy. So, friends, before you blame it on getting old, do something about those B-complex vitamins. Well, what would you suggest? Fortify your meals by taking a single one-a-day brand vitamin B-complex tablet every day. That's all, just one tablet every day. This one tablet provides the basic daily supply of the B-complex vitamins whose requirements are known. That means convenience and low cost, too. You say that name is One-A-Day Brand? Yes, a name to remember. One-A-Day Brand Vitamin B-Complex Tablets. They're made by the makers of Alka-Seltzer, and you get them at any drugstore. Look for the big one on the gray package. Now, back to the NBC Newsroom. Condé Ceylon, British and British Indian troops pressing hourly closer to the strategically placed Burmese city of Mandalay have just completed another fierce battle with the Japs and have won the decision after 56 hours of uninterrupted fighting. Tomorrow, as everyone should know and should take as a very personal matter, the American Red Cross begins its annual drive for the collection of the great sums of money it needs to do its immeasurably great and important task. In time of war, as in time of peace, that varied task is unique and uniquely valuable. One function of the Red Cross, which has saved countless lives, is the preparation and shipment of food packages to the hungry American prisoners of war detained by our enemies. Without those packets marked with the international symbol of mercy, the Red Cross, many of the lives of our young men would have ended through slow starvation. The Red Cross is our own. We look to it for help. For this one short season, it looks to us for help. Give, give generously, and then give once more to the American Red Cross. And that's the news of the world. This is John W. Vandercook speaking for Alka-Seltzer. Until tomorrow at this same time, goodbye from the newsroom in New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Mm-hmm.